Hello and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest foxcasting either side of the breach. On today's episode, we meet two women named Victoria. Many think they are identical twins, but the truth is far stranger. Victoria Chambers is a human mercenary, while the second Victoria is a doppelganger who was originally sent to kill Victoria, but is now her lifelong ally. We meet the Victorias as they hunt Titania, the Fairy Queen. I hope you enjoy part one of Bloodlust, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by the Ronin of Malifaux. The Ronin are masterless mercenaries willing to take virtually any contract thrown their way. If you want loyal fighters with nothing to lose, you won't find a better deal than the Ronin. Bloodlust, by David Tanya-Ivy and Tim Akers. They came to kill the Queen. Forty of the hardest men and women Malifaux had to offer. Armed to the teeth, and full of the fury that only greed and fear can provide. The forest seethed around them, spilling out wave after wave of twisted monstrosities. Half flesh and half tangling vines, screaming as they rushed the mercenaries' defensive line. The sound of gunfire mingled with howls and cries. Lesser men would have been crushed. But these were not lesser men, these soldiers of fortune and violence. The Victorias paid them well and chose them wisely. They were up to the task. Despite the numbers against them, despite the horror of corrupted bodies that boiled out of the forest to claw and nip at them, despite the single-minded violence of the enemy's relentless assault, the Victorias' company was slaughtering the Fae. The bodies were piling up, and few of them were human. Two figures danced through the middle of the carnage, moving to the rhythm of the battle. Twins, they moved as fluidly as the blood they shared, two bodies with one mind, united in violence. One bore a single long blade of Orient design in one hand, and a revolver in the other, mixing steel and lead in a storm of death. A manic fury filled her eyes. The other Victoria fought more methodically, cutting through her opponents with twin blades. The passage of her show through the air sounded like the low droning hum of a dirge, interrupted only by the screams of her victims. To the men and women who fought at their side, the Victorias were a whirlwind of blade and blood, the crack of gunfire and severed bone, the only music in their dance. Then something changed. A hulking tree spirit broke free from the forest, and trampled into the mercenary's line. A ronin stepped forward to engage it, 
slicing through its gnarled limbs and scoring the bark of the creature's chest before being driven back by the force of the creature's charge. The nearest Victoria stepped forward to keep the line from breaking. She fired a fusillade of shots into the thing, and then, when it wouldn't answer to lead, charged forward, swinging the wicked length of the Matamune Nahonto over her head. The Ronin went to one knee to let Victoria pass. Victoria did not pass. Instead, as she approached the Ronin from behind, she dipped the sword and pulled it through the woman's back. Armor and flesh parted like silk beneath the ancient sword, barely slowing Victoria's pace. The Ronin sluiced apart. Victoria continued her charge, screaming as she met the tree spirit. A flurry of steel and flying splinters filled the air, and then the Fae also fell beneath Victoria's blade. The sight left the other Victoria wide-eyed and stunned. Her twin suddenly turned on her and advanced, bloodlust ridden across her face as she lunged, thrusting the tip of her blade toward Victoria's throat. There was only a moment of hesitation. Victoria then rolled to the side out of her twin's path. She landed in a guard position, paired blades held warily toward her twin. The Masamune Nihonto quivered, buried to the hilt in the chest of a shadow-wrapped fae. The fiend had snuck behind the lines and had nearly gotten the drop on Victoria. Only her twin's quick action had saved her life. Keep up, damn it, Victoria snarled as she withdrew the Masamune Nahonto from the Fae's corpse and resumed the dance of death. Her twin, eyes still wide at the sight of the Ronin's murder, spared no time in returning to the other Victoria's side, with her twin swords at the ready. But doubt began to gnaw at the back of her mind. Doubt, and even fear. The Queen's forest drank deep that day. The blood of human and never-born alike mixed with the soil, to turn the ground beneath their boots into a foul-smelling mud. The mercenaries spread out across the battlefield, foraging for valuables among the fallen fae and collecting their own dead. Despite the victory, their mood was sour, and a grim cloud hung over their conversations. The only prizes they found were crushed flowers and blunt wooden swords, hardly the treasure they had been promised. And of their dead, though there were few, their corpses were mangled nearly beyond recognition. Here's another, Kaya called from one of the many flower beds that had sprung up across the battlefield, like scabs on the bloody earth. She nudged the corpse carefully with her blade. A long gash cut the body in half. Kaya caught sight of a bangle tied around the corpse's ankle. Her heart skipped a beat. I... I think it was Tukiko, she said. Although the Ronin had seen many battles since arriving in Malifaux, something about her friend's corpse left in such a state left a twisting knot in the pit of her stomach. That puts us at a dozen losses. Not ideal, but it could have been worse considering their numbers, a dispassionate bishop mused. It's odd. Other than the few who died in the ambush, the rest all died right here. I don't remember the fighting here being any worse than anywhere else. Victoria, you two were nearby, weren't you? We were, Victoria answered sharply. She sat at the edge of the clearing, wetting the blade of the Masamune. A number of nearby mercenaries turned their attention to the twins at the woman's tone. A number of Titania's more vicious minions came from the woods over there, the other Victoria answered. 
she gave her sister a look and shifted her glare to a nearby copse of trees. Tukiko and the others were overwhelmed. We tried to save them, but it was too late. There was a moment of silence. Bishop looked from one sister to the other, then shrugged. Most of the mercenaries went back to sifting through the battlefield, seeming to accept Victoria's explanation. Others gave their commander a questioning look, but if any had doubts, they didn't voice them. We push on, Victoria said. She stood swiftly, giving the Masamune a practice swing before sheathing it. The queen awaits. Gather the personal belongings of the dead and leave the rest. If they have next of kin, we'll deliver them when we return to the city. The company hesitated, uncomfortable with leaving the bodies of their fallen behind. It wasn't hard to imagine what would become of them once the Fae returned. No one liked to think the same would happen to them should they fall in the next battle. You heard her, Victoria snapped. Though whether she was angry at their hesitation or her sister's heartlessness, no one could say. Pack up and get moving. We've got a queen to kill. Days passed, and the company was smaller. Time moved strangely here. Long marches stretched from dawn to dusk, and then the night would come and go and come again before dinner was finished. There were battles along the way. Brief moments of terror sprinkled through the journey. Smaller Nephilim would burst from the tree line, raining chaos through their ranks, sometimes merely an inconvenience, and sometimes deadly. The forest crawled with corrupted wildlife. Every step required one's full attention, Every corner promised ambush and tedium. It wore on the company, grinding them down in both body and mind. And when they slipped, when their guard dropped or their mind wandered, the Fae would strike. Every night they buried another. Tonight they buried John the Brute. To John and his weird obsession with Nephilim girls, one of the mercenaries shouted as he brought his glass up. The flickering light of the campfire reflected off the faces of a half-dozen mercenaries, faces already flush with cheap whiskey and nerves. Calls of Tajan filled the camp from a number of fires, and even one or two from nearby tents, where mercenaries had given up trying to sleep with the ruckus outside. Sue drank, then spat the swill into the flames. Wincing, he produced a bottle from his private stock and passed it to his fireside companions. They took it gratefully, muttering their thanks as Sue returned to strumming his guitar. Bishop, Big Jake, and Kaya sat quietly around the flames. John had been one of them, and a good friend, a good fighter. The mood around the fire grew increasingly dour, as stories were shared and drink imbibed, and soon enough a silence fell over the four mercenaries. There's something strange going on. Bishop was the first to break the silence, his voice only loud enough for the other three to hear. He didn't want what he was about to say to spread among the camp. There were too many people he didn't personally know, too many potential threats. The other day I caught the Victorias arguing over something, and again just yesterday. I've worked with those two more times than I can count, and not once have I seen them bicker like that. What can those two have to argue about? Kaya muttered. Which one gets to hold the Masamune tonight? 
I didn't hear what it was all about. Didn't want to, neither. I learned a long time ago that you don't want to get into a sibling quarrel. But it was serious. I don't like the idea of the Victorias fighting each other. Feels wrong. They've always been eerily single-minded, Kaya said. I know the joke's about twins, but sometimes it's just creepy how in tune with one another they are. Journey through the breach does strange things to folks, Bishop said. Stranger than twins arguing. Kaya took another swig from the whiskey bottle before passing it off. A combination of the evening's liquor and company had taken her mind off her lost friend. Bishop's words brought a new concern to the forefront of her thoughts, however. You're right, though. Something's strange. I'd never say that the sisters are chummy with us, but usually they check up on us after a bad fight, Kaya said. I just thought they were focused on the job. Or maybe I was letting the stress get to me. Have any of you ever heard one of them talking to that damned sword? Big Jake said. He spoke low enough that the others had to lean in to hear him. All three shook their heads. This morning when we were breaking camp, I went to ask them about our route. Only the one was about. Not sure she even saw me. She was just sitting there, holding her sword up and talking to it. Jay continued and even held his hands up to show off just how Victoria had been holding her weapon. I got out of there before she noticed. Did the sword talk back to her? Kaya questioned. Not that I could hear, but she seemed to believe it was. Kept telling it not to worry, that we'd be there soon. It was unnerving, answered Jake. I know some of the Ronin like to name their swords and pamper them like children, but this wasn't like that. She was treating it like a real person. Sue had enough. The big mercenary pushed himself up to his feet, startling the other three. The man in black shook his head a few times, slung his guitar over his back and spoke. Are you listening to yourselves? You sound like a bunch of gossiping children. Sue chastised his companions. A few others looked over to see what the commotion was, but were quickly drawn back into their own conversations. There's never been siblings that didn't fight from time to time. Talking to your sword's a bit weird, I'll give you that, Jake. But I probably talk to my guitar without thinking much about it. Unless she seems unhinged, you shouldn't go spreading that stuff around. The Victorias hired us to do a job, not talk behind their backs. The other three stared sheepishly into the fire. Now if you'll excuse me, much like a summer romance, whiskey's only temporary, Sue said, then walked into the darkness beyond the camp's light. Sue made a sound of relief once the deed had been done, and began to make his way back to camp. He was certain the others would have returned to their gossip, just as he was sure the liquor had been making things seem more concerning than they were. Talking to her sword, Victoria was probably just thinking out loud, and siblings fight all the time. They had enough to deal with on this job without making up stories about their boss. A flicker of movement in the darkness caught his eye. His guns were in hand by the time the mountain lion landed in front of him. The creature didn't growl, didn't attack, but just stared into Sue's eyes. 
That and a strange object tied to the beast's back made Sue question if it might be a tame animal. He brought his hands up and puffed his chest out to make himself look larger than he was. His mouth opened as he prepared to try and frighten it off, but his voice came out not as a threatening shout, but a confused sound somewhere between a swear and a surprised cry. The cat transformed before Sue's eyes. He could hear cracks and pops coming from the creature, as its legs elongated and filled out. Hind legs and paws became uncomfortably human-looking, made more so by how the beast knelt, and then stood upright as the rest of its body changed. The process was over quickly, though that was small comfort for Sue, who had to watch as the feline became a wild, blonde woman. Lower your weapons, I mean you no harm. Miranda nodded to the pistols in Sue's hands that were still trained on her midsection. She sighed in annoyance when the man didn't budge. If I wanted to kill you, I'd have taken you from behind while you were taking your piss. Sue couldn't really argue with the woman's logic, and slowly lowered his guns, but caution kept them in hand. The two figures stared at one another in the darkness for a few seconds, before Miranda unslung a large book from her back. The tome's black cover gleamed like oil in the moonlight. It made Sue's skin crawl just looking at it. He sure as hell didn't want to touch it. But when the strange woman held the book out to him, Sue reached out and took it from her hands against his better judgment. It squirmed like a snake tensing to strike. Titania knows that you're coming for her, Miranda said, drawing Sue's attention away from the unnatural tome. Her forces are preparing an ambush for you, one that you will not survive. I have made a map of the surrounding area for you, marking the ambush point and a safe path around. It will lead you to the Queen's Court. I trust that your pack leaders will put it to good use. And the book? Sue asked. The cover creaked as he opened it. There was a crudely drawn map between the cover and the first page. It hardly seems worth carrying something this heavy just to deliver a map. A gift. Ancient magic that will aid Victoria in the fight to come, Miranda said. Her body began to change again. Her blonde hair turned brown and rough, while spotted plumage spread rapidly across her body. Wait, Sue said. Miranda's transformation halted part way. The unnerving mixture of woman and bird stared back at him like a silent predator, waiting for her prey's last words. Why are you helping us? Helping the Victorias. I want Titania dead as much as your pack's leaders do, Miranda answered, in a tone all too familiar to Sue. Not giving the man a chance to respond, Miranda completed her transformation from woman to bird. With a screech, the owl took off into the night, leaving Sue alone with the book. Victoria stared down at the tome sitting atop the old and beaten table. Beyond the confines of their command tent, the sisters' mercenaries were busying themselves. The Queen's ambush had failed thanks in no small part to Miranda's aid, but there was still much to be done. The campsite had to be secured, firewood gathered, and tents put up. It would keep their forces busy long enough for the Victorias to discuss the gift they had been given. The tome lacked the same oily appearance in daylight that it had had beneath the twinkle of stars and gaze of Malifaux's moons 
That didn't mean the ancient magic contained within didn't leave a sense of unease, particularly among those who knew its secrets. Victoria's sister did not appear to be concerned with the book. If anything, the other twin looked bored as she swung her unsheathed blade about. Absent-mindedly, she flicked the blade through the air this way and that, like a child playing with a toy. The sight left Victoria with a greater sense of unease than the book between them. How about you put that thing away? We've got a lot to talk about before we break camp tomorrow, she suggested. She couldn't hide the nervousness in her voice. The concern she felt for her twin was nearly at a breaking point. Ever since arriving in the Wildlands, Victoria's sister had been growing increasingly erratic. Killing their own people had just been the first sign that something was wrong. What are you talking about? It's been sheathed since... Victoria shot back, but stopped mid-sentence as she noticed the sword in her hand. I'm just practicing, she said, smoothly sheathing the Masamuni. What's got you so worked up, anyway? Her sister waited for several seconds before she closed her eyes. It wasn't worth getting drawn into another argument. She motioned to the book. The text is never born, she said, opening to the page that had been marked for them. The text was familiar to anyone who had studied the language of Malifaux's natives. In one of the Victoria's case, there had been no need to study, no need to cross-reference a linguistic primer or textbook. It was her language. It's a spell, to summon the cursed one, Killjoy. A friend of yours, Victoria's sister asked offhandedly, He's a monster. There are stories of his strength and his bloodlust. An undead creature from before anyone can remember, Victoria answered. He's a disgusting abomination, but one that could easily turn the tide of any battle for those willing to meet his price. I'm concerned that the book doesn't say exactly what that price is. I don't need the help of some walking corpse, Victoria said. She drew the Masamune Nihonto in a smooth motion and plunged it into the wooden table. The table split open with a crack, startling Victoria and drawing a laugh from her sister. A grin spread across the woman's lips, confident and wild. I can handle anything Titania throws at me. We don't know everything she has at her disposal, the other Victoria began to argue before her sister's voice snapped. I don't need any help. Not from this killjoy monster. Not from the mercenaries outside. I don't even need you. The word stung Victoria more than she cared to admit, but she held her tongue. They didn't need another argument. Not when they were so far from Malifaux and surrounded by such dangerous enemies. Their prize was close. They couldn't afford to waver now. It doesn't hurt to have some sort of backup plan, she said. I don't want to return to Malifaux and explain to Vanessa why most of our girls are missing. If you're so frightened by the Neverborn Queen, then take the others and flee with your tail between your legs. Victoria withdrew her blade from the table and brought the point towards the tent's flap. As long as I have the Masamune Nihonto, I don't need you or anyone else. I will march into the Titania's court and behead her by myself if I need to. And no one, no thing, will stand in my way.
Her sister felt an anger rising, a flame in her chest that wanted to be let out. Instead, she snatched up the tome and strode from the tent without another word. Let her sister believe what she wanted. Victoria would do whatever it took to win tomorrow's battle. Victoria walked casually through the camp, tome in hand. She needed time to calm down. Maybe her sister was right. Maybe they could take on Titania without Killjoy's help. But she would rather be sure. Around her, the camp buzzed with activity. The company of mercenaries scuttled about, preparing for the morning's battle, or at least distracting themselves from the fight to come. Or maybe they were just trying to appear busy to impress the boss. It didn't matter. Victoria had a plan. Now she just needed to find the right volunteers. She had a number of potential candidates. These men and women had sworn to fight and die for their cause, or at least for the promised paycheck at the end. Most were driven by greed, of course, but the end result would be the same no matter their conviction. They were willing to die for gold. And whether they died in battle, or as the result of something else, it didn't matter to Victoria. As long as they won the fight. As long as Titania died. The sound of laughter drew Victoria's attention to a quartet of ronin sitting together. They were busy cleaning armor, sharpening swords, checking and double-checking the ammunition in their pistols. Victoria remembered that life, the simple existence of the weapons to hand and the friends who fought by your side. But she had other worries now, and other weapons. So how do you tell them apart? The youngest of the four ronin asked the amusement of her seniors. You can't. We've tried, Kaya said with a laugh. I've tried all sorts of tricks. Looked for distinct markings, personality quirks. Only thing that comes close is that one likes to use a single blade and the other likes to use two. Wouldn't that be enough? You'd think so, but no. I think they change who uses what every so often to keep people guessing. And how would you know? Victoria asked as she walked up to the campsite. Her voice jolted the ronin out of their reverie. The four girls began to stammer out apologies. Victoria raised a hand to silence them. You needn't apologize. We intentionally match our mannerisms, clothing and fighting styles to leave others confused. Frankly, it's gotten to the point where we're not even sure which of us was born first. There are ways to tell us apart, Victoria continued. Her smile became more of a smirk as she briefly considered telling these girls the truth. She wondered how they would take it. Would they think it a joke? Would the truth break them? No. No sense in telling them that bit of information. Still, she held them in rapt attention, and it would be a waste not to use it. She's fond of raspberry pastries. Can't stop eating them. It's a disgrace she said. The Ronin stared at her in confusion, trying to figure out if Victoria was telling them the truth or pulling some sort of joke on them. Eventually the four laughed. Whether it was true or not, the idea of one of the Victorias buying an entire bakery stock of pastries in her downtime held entertainment. Victoria waited until the laughter had died down. 
before she held the tome out to the nearest ronin. Confused, the girl took it and gave a questioning look to her commander. I've marked a page in there for the four of you to memorize for the upcoming battle, Victoria said, smiling warmly. Of course, Kaya said. But if you don't mind my asking, why? It's a spell. A dangerous one. But it could win the battle for us. Only use it on my command, Victoria said. She reached over and opened the book for the Ronin, pointing out the spell. Don't say the words aloud until you're given the instruction to do so. Our target has eyes and ears among the trees, and we don't want her to know what we have planned until the trap is sprung. Victoria watched as the Ronin eagerly leapt upon the tome. Cries of yes, Victoria, left their lips. But their admiration was lost on the woman as she turned and left the girls to their studies. Thoughts of the coming battle filled her mind once more. Desperate battles, desperate weapons, she muttered to herself. Everyone dies eventually. Why not here? Why not them? That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for the conclusion of Bloodlust on Tales of Malifaux.